invite you to take a copy of the scriptures and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 12 through 19 this morning. If you're looking ahead at all, you'll notice that we're nearing the end of 1 Peter. We have just one more chapter to go after today. And so Peter has a final word to say about suffering in the Christian life, a theme that runs throughout this letter. And his focus in our passage today has to do with how we as Christians respond to fiery trials on account of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, as we take a look at these, I want us to see four paradoxes in, in our passage, right? Things that at first may seem strange, backwards, don't fit together, uh, but upon further reflection make a great deal of sense. So four paradoxes in terms of our response to suffering in the Christian life. Uh, the first one is in verses 12 and 13, joy in the midst of suffering. That's number one. The second paradox is in Verse 14, blessed in the midst of insult. Blessed in the midst of insult. The third is in verses 15 and 16, praised in the midst of stigma. And then the fourth and final one in verses 17 through 19 is trust in the midst of judgment. Those are the four paradoxes we're going to consider before we read God's word, let's pause for just a brief moment and ask for his help. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we look to you now for help, and we ask that you would bring the truth of your word to bear upon our minds, our hearts, our lives, renew our minds, so that we are transformed, work on reordering our priorities so that our lives line up with the truth of the gospel shape what we desire, and as we reflect on this passage, even what we feel, how we experience emotion in our lives, shape and conform us to the image of Jesus and give us eyes to see his glory and his grace. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen. First Peter chapter 4. Beginning in verse 12, let's hear God's word together. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? 
Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I want to get right to it this morning and begin unpacking this first paradox of joy in the midst of suffering. If you glance back again at verse 12, see what he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Next verse, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. There's a lot that's being said in those words, but there's two fundamental parts to what Peter is saying. Don't be surprised by suffering on the one hand, and on the other hand, rejoice in the midst of it. Insofar as you share in the sufferings of Jesus. Don't be surprised by suffering uh, for Jesus. And in the midst of that suffering, rejoice. Uh, Clearly, Peter does not think that following Jesus is going to make your life easy. Right? Uh, In some ways, it does. When, When God calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light and unites us to to Christ and delivers us from worshiping the the idols of this world, the idols within our own hearts, and he brings us to to live and serve the, the, the one true living God. When we have Jesus Christ as our gracious Lord and Master, it brings a clarifying simplicity to our lives, doesn't it? But at the same time, following Jesus very clearly does not grease all of the the wheels of the machinery of your life. It may very well introduce new trials because following Christ in this world makes you stick out. You stick out in this world. Something else I think we need to be clear about as we try to understand what Peter's saying here is nobody wants to suffer. Peter's not telling Christians, go, go looking for some suffering and rejoice in it. Let's be clear about this. Peter is, isn't even telling us that we should rejoice in the suffering in and of itself. Instead, he's telling us that we ought to rejoice in being identified with Jesus and being made to share in his sufferings. But think about what he's saying for a minute. Rejoicing in the midst of suffering. That that ought to sound kind of strange to us. It sounds kind of counterintuitive. It sounds a bit weird. Rejoice in the midst of suffering. One of the questions I think we have to ask ourselves is, okay, how does that work? Why? How can we as Christians truly rejoice in the midst of of suffering. I, I think we need to step back for a few minutes, and what I want to do is, is say a few more general things about emotions. Okay. Let me think about a theology of emotions for a few minutes. Right? We, all, we all experience emotions. We're emotional creatures, things like happiness, joy, sadness, sorrow, gratitude, fear, and, and, and so on. Some some specialists today say that, you know, in our materialist world, some of them say that emotions are, are nothing more really than electrochemical states of your brain and other parts of your central 
nervous system. In other words, it's just your body's chemical response to stimuli. Now, most people recognize, even if they've embraced at some level that sort of material understanding of the world, and that we're nothing more than, you know, a, a complicated machine, they will recognize, nonetheless, that that doesn't even come close to doing justice to our lived human experience. Most people recognize that. So we need to, we need to say up front, we don't, we don't need to deny that there's a, there's a bodily or you know, neurological aspect to our emotional life, right? It's one of the reasons why, as, as Christians, we recognize that living in a, in a fallen world, sometimes our bodies and our emotions do not always function the way that they should. But for, for, for Christians, there's, there's more we can go on to say about emotions. Let's follow scripture's lead here. And I want to just outline four quick things, okay? Four things, summary statements. Number one, this is very general, very basic. Emotions are very important. <laughs> it's maybe something we need to remind ourselves of. Sometimes, and I, and I think in our own circles, we can be suspicious of emotions, um, they're an important part of the Christian life, however. You know, the Psalms are, are full of examples of God's people expressing emotion in prayer, in song, uh, joy and sorrow, lament, uh, sadness, grief, depression, and, and so on. You know, Calvin, Calvin calls the, the book of Psalms an anatomy of the human soul. And one of the things he means by that expression is that within the Psalms, we, we have the, the full breadth, the full spectrum of human emotion expressed. And sometimes those emotions are good. Sometimes they're right. But sometimes those emotions are wrong and they need to change. And take an example of that from, from Psalm 73. Well-known psalm of, of Asaph. Now, how is how's the psalmist feeling at the beginning of that psalm? He's, he's envious. He's upset. He's even feeling bitterness. He, he looks upon the proud, the arrogant, those who disregard God and just live for themselves. He says they wear pride like a necklace. And it seems like everything just goes their way. Life is smooth sailing for them. Nothing bad ever seems to happen to them. And on the other hand, here he is trust, trying to, to live a life of faith. And, and, and life is hard. And, and so he's envious. He's become bitter because he perceives that others have it better. Now, one of the things we need to, to see is that his emotional experience there is, is really important. It tells us something about how he perceived his, his life and the world and how he was responding to his experience. And you remember, though, as the psalm goes on, as he comes into the presence of the Lord and he remembers the character of God and the promises of God and the end of the proud when he sees things the way they really are and remembers God, his emotions change, don't they? Moves from being envious and bitter 
to being hopeful and trusting in God. So this is the first basic thing I want us to see here. Emotions are an important part of our human experience. Now, here's the second thing we need to say, and this one might sound kind of strange at first, but follow with me. Emotions can be commanded. Emotions can be commanded. Not in the sense of, oh, you're feeling down today. Come on, just cheer up. Right? No, but in the sense of aligning our emotions with what's true, with what's real. Aligning our emotions with the realities revealed in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we find commands in uh, the scriptures like uh, in Psalm 42 and the psalmist says to himself, why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. Or as Paul will say, command in in, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances. And as Peter is saying here in our passage, Passage, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering. You see, the goal here, though, is it's never merely verbal performance. The aim is to align our emotions with what we know to be real, what we know to be true, right? We, we should have hope when God is our God, when he is our Redeemer and friend. We should give thanks in all circumstances in light of God's bountiful care of us. We, we should rejoice when the world recognizes that we are trusting and following Jesus. So emotions are important. Emotions can be commanded. Number, number three, emotions in the Christian life are spiritual. Cap, capital S, okay? Things like Gratitude, uh, joy, peace, compassion. These are the kinds of things that Paul in Galatians calls the fruit of the Spirit. And what he means by that is that they are the product of the Spirit's ministry in our lives as we abide in Jesus. I wonder if, I don't think we we think in these terms very often. Maybe we need to do it more, more. That one of the things the Spirit is given to do in our lives is to reorder our emotional life as more and more we come to see our lives and our experience through the lens of the gospel. We need to avoid a mistake here. The mistake is to think that, well, because this is the work of the Spirit, that there's nothing we could ever do to to foster a rightly ordered emotional life. But friends, that's just not, that's not true. The Holy Spirit works through means. Holy Spirit works through means, which God has has given to us to help us grow in Christ. He's, He's given us his word. He's given us the ministry and the preaching of his word. He's given us to one another in the fellowship of the saints to, to, to sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. He's given us prayer to seek his face and to pour out our hearts and find grace in our time of need. He's given us the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And as we give ourselves to these things, 
this ongoing transformation gets worked out in our lives as we fix our eyes on Christ. Minds are renewed. Priorities are changed. Desires are are reordered. How we think is brought more and more into conformity with the truth that is in Jesus Christ. And the fruit, the fruit of that, the fruit of the Spirit's work in the lives of, of God's people are a people who are learning to be joyful, learning to be grateful and hopeful, at, at peace with God and with themselves and with each other. You see, emotions in the Christian life are spiritual. The fruit of the Spirit changing and growing and maturing us. Now, there's just one more thing I want to say here about emotions, and, and this will bring us back to Peter and, and making sense of how he can exhort Christians to rejoice in the midst of suffering. Okay, here's what I want to say. Emotions reflect what we care about and how we see the world. Again, I'm, I'm speaking here in general terms today. I know a bunch of qualifications could be made. But generally speaking, emotions reflect what we care about and how we see the world. They, they indicate how a person's heart is oriented towards something. There's a fellow by the name of Robert Roberts. He's a Christian ethicist. I don't know what his parents were thinking, right? Robert Roberts. I don't know. What do they, they call him? Bobby Roberts? I don't know. But a uh, Christian ethicist, he, he wrote a really helpful book. The book's titled Spiritual Emotions, a Psychology of Christian Virtues. And I just want to share his definition of emotions with you and try to unpack it. Okay? He defines emotions as concerned, a concern-based construals. Concern-based construals. Now, what does he mean by that? He means that our emotions are interpretive responses which actually reflect our, our deepest concerns and desires, right? We all, have, we all have cares and concerns and desires, and we all perceive our life and experience in the world and interpret it in the light of, of beliefs that we have. And, what's, and we respond emotionally in our lives accordingly. And so uh, Bobby Roberts, or whatever you want to call him, he, he, he gives an illustration, because that concern-based controls is probably not the most helpful uh, statement. He, he gives this illustration that I'm going to change a little bit for our sake this morning, okay? Let's say, let's say you've planted a, a garden in, in your, your yard uh, when springtime comes, okay? And you love tomatoes, so you, you plant a bed of tomatoes. And you're, you know, you're nearing the harvest, but you, you get one day an alert on your phone that says severe weather, uh, golf ball-sized hail is, is, uh, is on the way. Now, how would, you, how would you respond emotionally to that? Probably with a little bit of fret and anxiety about what might happen to your precious tomatoes, right? That doesn't, that doesn't really give the full explanation because we have to understand the, the background that you've, you've cultivated, the, you, you've dug up the soil, you've planted the seeds, you've cultivated the plants, you've 
fenced it in to protect it from wildlife. I mean, you've really invested in bringing these tomatoes to the point where you can enjoy them. And then you get this alert that a storm is coming. And so you feel fear and maybe a bit of anxiety. That, that's, that's what Roberts means by concern-based control. Okay? Now, here's the thing to understand, though. You could have somebody else in that exact same situation who has an entirely different emotional response to those circumstances. Right? Let's say you're really busy. You're working, I don't know, 60 hours a week and for whatever reason, you've decided to plant an enormous tomato field and you just can't manage it. So you, you hire a, a, a kid down the street to take care of the plants for you. And, you know, he's, he's young and he just wants, he wants some money to take his girlfriend out on dates. He doesn't really give a rip about the tomatoes and he gets the same alert on his phone. How, how is he feeling? Probably indifferent. Probably not feeling the same fear and anxiety that you, you might be experiencing. So, you see, your emotions are grounded in your, your concern and how you perceive the situation. Right? That's what Roberts means by concern-based control. Our cares and desires and how we, how we read, how we interpret what's going on, disposes us to certain emotions. Your, your concern for those plants, for example, that in and of itself isn't an emotion, but it opens you up to a variety of emotional experiences. The emotion you, 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 you might feel as, as uh, you perceive uh, the situation and how it affects your, what you're concerned about. All right, so... Let's, let's build on the illustration here. If, if the storm looks certain, you feel anxiety. If for some reason the storm passes, what do you feel? You feel relief. Or what, what would happen if some kids, you know, rode their bikes right through your field and uh, ripped it all up? You'd probably feel a little bit of justified anger. Okay? So... What's all of this got to do with what Peter says about rejoicing in the midst of suffering? Emotions are concern-based controls. Here's why I think I wanted to take us through all of that, to see how embracing the good news about Jesus results in new concerns and a distinctive way of Interpreting, understanding our experience in this world. What does the gospel tell us? It tells us God is your loving father who has redeemed you from sin and death and slavery through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It tells you you are his beloved child alongside many other brothers and sisters who are kept and protected by your loving Father to the end. And you are being changed into something lovely as he by his spirit is conforming you more and more and more to the image of his beloved Son. But belonging to Christ and identifying with him also means that in this life you will face trials and opposition, fiery trials as Peter calls them. But you see how Peter is 
reorienting how we think about these kind of things because he wants us to understand that opposition and trials only confirm, according to the purposes of God, that you, in fact, belong to Jesus. That your trust in him is not phony, it's, it's real. And that the spirit of the living God dwells in you. And that your final end is salvation and glory in the presence of God to the praise of his grace. And you see, because your chief concern is the glory of God now in, in all things as you follow Jesus, because you understand that trials are not meaningless, but actually have a purpose and will one day give way to the eternal weight of glory, you can rejoice in the midst of suffering. That's Peter's logic. Rejoicing in the midst of suffering is a concern-based control. <laughs> Because the gospel gives us new concerns and a new way of seeing our place in the world. I think the apostles are such a great example of this uh, in the book of Acts. Think about, think about how they responded <coughs> when they were arrested and imprisoned and beaten for telling other people about Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 5, what did they do? <laughs> they rejoiced. How? Why? <laughs> right? Being arrested and uh, imprisoned and beaten are not usually things we think about that cause rejoicing. Right? They're not usually sources of joy. But the apostles rejoiced. Now, most people would say that's terrible. Right? Their, their emotional response to those kind of things would probably be distress, fear, anxiety, maybe no small amount of anger. But the apostles rejoiced because they saw themselves, as Luke describes it in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, they saw themselves as having been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. You see, because their concerns and understanding of their experience had been completely reordered by the gospel. Now, as I think about this and, and try to think about what it means for my own life, I, I don't know about you, but it, it forced me this, this past week as I thought about it to realize I've got a long way to go in maturing emotionally. Right? Would my response to persecution and fiery trials for my faith, would my instinctual response be to rejoice for being counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. No, I'll tell you, no, it wouldn't. <laughs> I'd be responding in different ways. I wonder about you. You know, we may not be facing the same fiery trials that these Christians were at the time, but friends, this passage, it calls us to prepare ourselves for trials should they, should they come. So that raises a question, how, how do we prepare well, we, we prepare by having our thinking and desires and, you see, even our emotions shaped by
by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. By striving to know more and more of Christ, who he is, what he's done for us, so that Christ is formed in us, so that spiritual fruit that looks like Jesus would be born in our lives. Because, friends, this is God's will for us. Our sanctification, Paul says. And that, that transforming work shapes how we think, it shapes what we want, so that even our emotional life begins to take its cues from the truth of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and coming return. And you see what that means for us? It's not just preparing for something that, that's yet to come. It's also a reminder that we can, we can live for the glory of God today through Jesus Christ along these lines. Not just when fiery trials come, but right now in our daily lives. By, by God's grace, we can, we can learn to trust God and, and know peace instead of being fretful and anxious about everything. We can, we can hope in God instead of giving into despair. We can give thanks even in the midst of of lack or loss in light of God's care of us. We can learn to be content and satisfied even in the midst of disappointment because Jesus Christ is enough. See, that's the first paradox, and I promise the others will be much more brief, but joy in the midst of suffering. Let's, let's run ahead here to the second one. Uh, blessing in the midst of insult. Look again at verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So, Peter is saying that if you suffer insult for Christ, you are blessed. Blessed not because you're insulted, but because it serves to confirm that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, we, we need to recognize people, people misuse and abuse biblical teaching like this. See examples of it all the time. There are people who say and do things in the name of God that are not of God. And when they're criticized for it or when they suffer for it, they, they, they play the victim card and identify themselves as victims of persecution. Okay, happens all the time. But Peter, we need, to, we need to say then, Peter is not talking about pugnacious, mean-spirited people who, who really bring shame upon the name of, of Christ. He's talking about Christians who, who love Jesus and live for him and as a result are insulted for it. Right? They're mocked, they're slandered, they're, they're ridiculed by others in their lives. If, if that's you, in any way, Peter's saying, you are blessed. Why? Because the negative reaction of others is actually a testimony in your life that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. Do you, do you see how Peter is changing our perspective and therefore how we respond to these kind of things in our lives? This is really meant to, to bring comfort and encouragement to people who are, who are being shamed for their devotion to the Lord Jesus. And maybe some of us today need that same encouragement. Maybe, maybe you've been insulted in one way or another for your faith in Christ by a friend or 
a coworker or a family member, perhaps it's even your own spouse. Peter's saying, take heart as you seek to be faithful each day, as you seek to remain devoted to Christ in your home or at work or at school or wherever you are, if people put you down for it, learn to see what's really going on. The spirit of glory and of God has begun to make you the aroma of Christ. You're blessed. And so keep on plotting. Keep on serving. Keep relying on the Spirit's work. Keep following Jesus. And so join the midst of suffering, blessed in the midst of insult. And third, praise or glory in the midst of stigma. Look again at verses 15 and 16, where Peter says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now, very simply, Peter's saying, Christians should not be people who suffer for doing wrong. And if you suffer, but if you suffer for being a Christian, he says, don't don't be ashamed. Instead, glorify God in that name. Now, it's really helpful, I think, to understand that when Peter wrote these words, the name or the title Christian was not a name that Christians came up with for themselves. It's often how we identify ourselves today, but it's not how early believers talked about themselves. With all the evidence we have, it, it looks like the, the origin of the name Christian came from the unbelieving world. In other words, it was, it was pagans who called these Jesus followers Christians. And it was meant to be an insult. It was a term of derision. It carried with it uh, social stigma. To be a Christian was a shameful thing. I've I've mentioned to you in the past the, the earliest piece of Christian graffiti that we've ever discovered. It's sometime around 200 A.D., Uh, discovered on a a plaster building that was used as a kind of uh, boarding school for imperial boys. And if you remember this this piece of graffiti, it it depicts someone being crucified. Come back to that in a second. And below the cross, there's somebody who's worshiping the figure on the cross. The one on the cross has the head of a donkey. And the inscription says, Aleximenos worships his God. Aleximenos worships his God. You see that? That's a, that's a little window into how other young men, perhaps, in the boarding school viewed Aleximenos. I don't know who he was. Maybe, maybe he was one of the boys in the boarding school. And, and here's how his peers thought about him. You know, Aleximenos worships an ass. That was, that was what was being communicated. It was meant to, to mock and to shame. And friends, it's not any different for some today. If you faithfully follow Jesus Christ, sometime or another, you will experience social shaming for it. And how should you respond right, when others are shaming you? See what Peter says. Don't be ashamed. I love this. Glorify God in that name. Don't you love that? 
He's saying, yeah, it's a title of derision. It's meant to shame you. And Peter's saying, own the name. (laughs) Own the name. Wear the name. Identify with it. Adorn it with a life that glorifies God. Instead of backing off when you're being shamed, keep keep living out your new identity in Christ and glorify him. That brings us to the last apparent tension here, the last paradox in verses 17 through 19, where Peter calls us to trust in the midst, in the midst of judgment. Well, again, there's a lot we could unpack in these verses, but let's just notice the two main parts of the paradox, okay? Part one is in verse 17. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. That was read, I think, in Sunday school this morning. He's talking about the church. It's a household of God imagery is language that Peter's been using throughout his letter to talk about the church made up of living stones as a dwelling place for God. Okay, that's the first part. The second part is in verse 19. Therefore, okay, since judgment begins in the house of God, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Okay, so there's, on the one hand, the reality of judgment beginning with us, and then there's this call to trust in the midst of judgment. Now, on face value, doesn't that sound kind of strange? You hear the apparent tension of that. You're going to be judged, therefore entrust your life to the one who's doing the judging. That's what Peter says. So let's think a little bit more about the first part, judgment beginning at the household of God. Peter, of course, is echoing, as we saw this morning in Sunday school, uh, the, the teaching of the Old Testament that God's judgment begins with his own people. And this may sound kind of strange for Christians today who, who at least by some teaching, are led to think that because of Christ, they are not subject to judgment. So let's be very, very clear about this, Okay. The teaching of the New Testament is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no no wrath in store for you. There's no condemnation in store for you because God's wrath has been poured out on his son for your sake. No fear of judgment in, in that sense then for Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who have been delivered from the destiny that is coming to those who disobey God by rejecting the gospel. But the New Testament is also clear that all people, including Christians, will be judged. And it is our standing in Jesus Christ, the righteous son of God, that will bring that judgment to a good end. But what's so striking about Peter's teaching here, I'm not going to go into all the grammatical details of this to try to show you how this is the case, but Peter is really saying that God's judgment is not just a thing that is going to happen at the end of history, though that will occur. There will be a final judgment. But Peter's actually saying God's judgment has already begun. It's happening right now. And within that framework of thinking for Peter, the suffering that Christians endures is in fact part of God's judgment. God is already sorting out humanity in history and part of that 
preliminary judgment involves Christians suffering for the sake of the gospel. And I think part of the challenge in understanding what Peter is communicating here is how, how we often think about judgment, right? When we hear judgment, the word we typically think of condemnation, uh, conviction, uh, penalty. And, and of course, elsewhere in the New Testament, judgment does mean that. But that is not the sense here where Peter talks about God judging his people. He means that instead that God is already sorting out humanity as judge. And fiery trials serve the purpose of his sovereign will to distinguish those who trust in Christ from those who reject the gospel. You see, in this way, God's present judgment confirms them as recipients of grace, that they are indeed blessed, that the spirit of glory and of God dwells on them. And so think of it in these terms. Just as the hostile reaction of the world served the purpose of God in sending Jesus to the cross to be the source of our salvation, so the hostile reaction of the world to followers of Jesus serves the purposes of God in confirming them as the recipients of that salvation. See, the world's hostility to the gospel is at the same time God's plumb line, testing and proving the mettle of those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, that their faith may be proved as genuine as smelted gold and silver. And so Peter can say, trust God in the midst of judgment. Judgment that's happening now as you await the, the final judgment that is to come. Now, the word therefore entrust, entrust your souls, it means something like to make a deposit, kind of like what you do when you go to the bank and you deposit some money into the bank. You're trusting the bank to, to keep that money safe. Or, or if you're a parent and you need to go somewhere for a, a day trip or a, a trip for work or whatever, what do you do? You, you may have to entrust your children to trustworthy people that they will take care of them. And you don't entrust your children to just anyone. No, you entrust them to people whose character assures you that they will keep your children safe. That's the kind of thing that Peter is getting at. That's the, that's the word picture here. We entrust our souls to God knowing that he cares for us and that his will for us is our everlasting salvation. So you see what Peter is doing here in this passage, friends. Peter is shaping our understanding of suffering by the gospel so that we learn more and more to respond as Christians. As Christians. And so he speaks to us along, these four, along line, the lines of these four paradoxes. These four paradoxical ways that Christians respond to suffering on account of their commitment to Christ. Joy amidst trials because we are identified with Christ. And as we share in his suffering, so too we know we will share in his glory. 
blessing amidst insult because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Praise amidst uh, (laughs) stigma because the shame of the world is the Christian's badge of honor and trust in the midst of judgment because God saves to the uttermost anyone who puts their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that leaves us then with just one final thing to say. Peter is reminding us here, God will judge us all. We will all stand before the man who has been appointed, Christ Jesus, and give an account. So Peter's also reminding us that we must obey the gospel. And we obey the gospel by turning away from ourselves to God and admitting that we are lost sinners in need of Jesus Christ. And the gospel gives us the assurance that when we put our trust in him, we find in the one who is appointed to judge the living and the dead, one who is our redeemer, our advocate, substitute and our friend so dear friends take refuge in Jesus Christ and may we all more and more come to find our our thinking our desires our priorities and even our emotions being shaped by the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ let's pray together heavenly father we We thank you for your word uh, to us today, and we pray that you would bring these things to pass in, in our lives, that if we are called to fiery trials, that we might be found rejoicing because we are identified with your son. We pray that we would, uh, Count ourselves blessed in the midst of insults because you're using those things to confirm that we have been sealed by the spirit. I pray that we would give praise and glory to you in the midst of, of stigma and with the apostles. Uh, count ourselves blessed to share in the privilege of even suffering for the, the honor of Christ's name. We, we pray as well that you would enable each and every one of us in the view of the final judgment to entrust our souls into your good and gracious hands. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.